February 2nd, 2012 is, this was one of the best days of my life. But it didn't start that way. It started uh, in the morning with my wife, Misty, being incredibly sick. She was, uh, the room was spinning, she was nauseous, she was throwing up, she couldn't eat, keep food down. So it was intense, and because she was, at this point, nine months pregnant, we're wondering, like, is this labor? And so we go to her, uh, to her doctor, we go in, they check her out, and a diagnosis was, was made. Misty had vertigo, which is apparently not just a movie, it's also a thing, like a diagnosis thing. And so she has vertigo, and, and as we're leaving, the doctor uh, just says, just go home and get some rest, at least you're not in labor. Just like, don't, don't say things like that. Uh, and especially not to a woman who's nine months pregnant. And so we go home, and a couple hours later, uh, as I'm like halfway out the door to work, Misty comes in and says, I think my water broke. So we go to the hospital. Uh, she still can't eat. The room is spinning. She's nauseous. She's sick. It's a terrible uh, experience until the, the, the doctor with the uh, spinal tap came in and gave her uh, what's it called? That's a girl. And then things got much better. Um, but it was still, she couldn't eat. She was sick. It was not going well. And there we went, 12 hours later, uh, after this, getting her into the hospital and experiencing vertigo. Uh, our first son was, was born, and, and a new experience was introduced to me, which is being a father. And a new experience was introduced to Misty, which was uh, giving birth in vertigo, and not being able to eat or, or drink or keep anything down while she's giving birth. Of course, also being a mother, that was an experience as well. But this is an incredible day. And even me, someone who's like a largely unemotional human being, um, felt the weight of becoming a father, felt the, the attachments and the, the love and the importance, the gravity of that moment. And so I know, I know sharing a story like that may be painful for some, that like family is not always like a warm-hearted metaphor for all of us. We all have a different experience of family, or maybe you wrestled with fertility, maybe your father was not who he should have been, maybe you're estranged from a child, or maybe want a child and you don't have a child. And the category of family carries carries a lot of weight, potentially a lot of pain, but also a lot of beauty for all of us, which is why I think God, through his spirit, inspired Paul to write what he writes here in Galatians 4 as he unpacks kind of another element of the gospel, which is new. This is the first time this is brought out for us in the book of, of Galatians. In Galatians 4, these nine verses are really about one thing. And that is that God is not, he doesn't just want to save you. He wants to adopt you. He doesn't just want to be your savior, your redeemer. He wants to be your father. He wants to hold you in his arms and in your helplessness, having you call him father and him call you his child. And do you believe that? Or maybe more importantly, have you experienced that? Have you experienced God as Father? If you have, I know this morning will give you just a deeper understanding and picture of what that means and a more meaningful experience of God as your Father. But if you haven't experienced that, I hope, I hope you will. But to get there, to get to that experience, we have to start where Paul starts, which is, is what life is like when God is not our Father, when we don't experience God as our Father. And, and the first thing Paul says is that without, without God as Father, we are trapped. 
And he says something in verse 3, which is confusing, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, but I want to unpack. It's in verse 3, where Paul sort of, he's explaining uh, these, these Christians' life before they encountered the gospel. And here's what he says, verse 3. It says, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Which probably makes no sense uh, to us, because this, this is ancient language. And so what's important to understand is, what does Paul mean when he says uh, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world? What are the elementary principles of the world? So the elementary principles, uh, this word, essentially in Greek and Roman thought, uh, it meant like the elements of the world. The people, the things that the people thought made up the material world you and I live in. So it was earth, wind, and fire. And also air, but I thought you'd remember it better if I started with the band. So earth, wind, and fire, and air. So the four elementary principles, and behind those uh, those things, people thought were, were spiritual forces or or gods. And so the religions of, of much of Greek and Roman thought meant that, that you had to, to worship or you had to appease the gods behind these elements in order for your life to go well, because the elements controlled your destiny, controlled your, your future. But what's interesting about what Paul does here is is Paul's not just talking about Greek and Roman religion, which he says is enslaving because you have to appease these, these gods which are very fickle and could often ruin your life. Paul actually, when he says in verse 3, he says this, we ourselves, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And Paul was, was a Jewish person. So what Paul's doing there is actually comparing his experience as a Jewish person to Greek and Roman religion. What you have to remember is that at the heart of Galatians, the dispute, what's happening is that there are, are Christians who think you have to live the Jewish law, you have to perform the Jewish law in order to be saved, so you have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian, you have to, to live out the Mosaic law in the Old Testament in order to be fully Christian. And, and what Paul is doing in these verses is he's comparing these Christians and going back to the Jewish law to earn their salvation with, with their their, their pagan religion, with their, their Greek and their Roman religion. And in verse 9, he does this again, when he, he said the last verse that we read. He says, but now that you've come to know God, now that you believe the gospel, you become a Christian, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world, whose slaves you want to be once more? So what's interesting is he's writing to Gentile people who were Greek and Roman religious people before they became Christians, but he's comparing their experience in Greek and Roman religion with Jewish religion. And essentially saying, all like all non-gospel religion is built on the idea that you have to perform certain sacrifices or you have to do certain things in order for God to respond to you in a certain way. So it's the, the thought that some of these Christians were, were saying in, in, in Galatia was that in order to be a Christian, you have to you have to be circumcised, you have to perform the Jewish law. And if you perform these things, then God will respond to you. With his salvation, and, and that's the way Greek and Roman religion works as well. Is if you were, if you do the right worship, worship uh, events, you do the right sacrifices, the gospel will respond to you in the right way. And what Paul is saying is that when you've experienced the gospel, you can't turn, you can't go back there. And to go back there is is to go back to slavery, to go back to being trapped. Paul's saying any religion that's not motivated by the gospel leaves you trapped. And there's a couple of ways I want to unpack what Paul's saying here. And the first is that non-gospel religion, so any, any religion that's not based on the gospel message, it reveals that we are trapped. 
So any way of religion where you're trying to earn your status before God, where you perform certain sacrifices, or you do certain good deeds, and therefore God merits his good works onto you, any religion like that, it leaves you trapped. And so last week, Naya talked about like, the good function of law. The law is not all bad. And I hope you don't hear me saying that. It's a bad way to try to earn your salvation before God, but the law is not all bad. Because one of the, the things that the law does, which is a good thing, is the law reveals that we are trapped. And the best way to, to illustrate this, there's an old, uh, old show, Matt TV, it's been a long time since it's been on, but um, there was a, a skit they did, or a, 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 a thing they did, where uh, Bob Newhart was playing counselor, and he was counseling this woman with advice, who was, was kind of beset by fear. And his advice to this woman, as a counselor, was two words. It was, stop. And that's all he says to her. It's like she's crippled by fear, and he says, stop it. Right? And, and that's the, sort of the, the, the irony or the humor behind this kid is she, she can't. We can't just stop. And that's a part of what the law's function is in us, is that things that we know we should stop doing, we can't. And things we know that we should start doing, we can't. And Paul meditates on this in Romans 7. And, and the verse that kind of sums up all of Paul's meditation on this is Romans 7.15. Paul says this. He says, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. And that's what the law reveals, is that the things that you know you should do, that you want to do, and that you want to do, you can't. And the things the law says, stop doing that, you, you can't. And it would be easy for us to sort of shrug our shoulders at that, or say, well, it's not a big deal, like, God will save you in the end, you know, it's grace. But the reality is that this is, this is a serious warning that we should, we should take in. Why can't we stop doing things that we know do not bring us life? Why can't we do, stop doing things that we know harm us? Why, why can't we stop doing things we know will destroy us, will destroy our families, will destroy our friends? Why can't we just stop? And Paul's answer in Galatians 4 is because, like any, any system that's not motivated by the gospel, it just leaves you trapped. It, you, you can't, it doesn't give you the freedom to be who you, who you were called to be. And it's why we need to take the law seriously. It's why we need to see that the laws of no salvation doesn't work. And so Tim Keller, reflecting this uh, idea like this, this is law and grace work together in Christian salvation. Many people want a sense of joy and acceptance, but they will not admit the seriousness of their sin. They will not listen to the law's searching and painful analysis of their lives and hearts. But unless we see how helpless and profoundly sinful we are, the message of salvation will not be exhilarating and liberating. The religion where you try to, to merit your place before God, or earn your salvation through good works or the right sacrifices, it doesn't work. It traps you, it enslaves you. Every failure is a word of condemnation. Every mistake you make draws you further and further from God. And so we need to let the law search our hearts, show us the need of grace that we have, which is why to turn back to the law as a means through which we try to make our, our place before God is, is, is to Paul a way of going back to slavery. And that's why a lot of people throw off religion. Like that's kind of a popular critique of religion today is that religion is an enslaving thing. It gives you laws and rules you have to keep, which just hold down your true self, hold down your true desire. So a, a kind of a flip way of, 
of responding to the enslaving nature of religion is to, to not be religious and to be free, to be, try to be free of uh, religion. But, but it's not just that non-gospel religion leaves you in trouble. Non-gospel living makes our desires cruel gods. That the answer to become free is not to get rid of religion, because living without God is not, it's not free. It actually, it turns our desires into cruel gods. So, for example, if the greatest desire in your life is to acquire wealth, or to have money, or to, 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 to indulge in happiness, which requires wealth, then ultimately wealth becomes your god, which becomes a controlling and enslaving Thing. You begin to live under the control of money, which is why uh, many of us in our culture are willing to go into deep debt to get the next purchase or to have the next experience that we think will bring us joy and happiness. The money and wealth is an idol in our, our culture, and our desire after those things, and over time, begin to enslave us, literally with debt that's, that weighs us down and prevents us from, from doing things we would otherwise want to do. But it's also an enslaving God that convinces us that joy, happiness, comes with the next purchase or the next experience. And so whatever our desire is, whether it's wealth or family or our sexuality or our career, we, when we put those things as the desire with which we'll chase with no rules, that desire becomes a cruel God that enslaves us. And even if you think about like our culture and our culture's typical gods, I think the enslaving nature is, is there, it's evident for us. When you think about sexuality, like would you look at our culture and say, like that's a that's a culture that has a really healthy view of sexuality, it treats women with respect, right? It's, it, 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 it has a healthy view of marriage. Right? The enslaving nature of creating our sexuality as a god is evidence all around us. Or like for all the books and articles and podcasts on a good work and family balance, like does our culture strike you as a culture with a healthy work and family balance? Or for all like the importance of, of family within our culture, like have you ever seen like parents on the sidelines during a sporting events, like, like and then just losing their mind? Or like I spent a week at Disney World at Disney World around parents, like less like does our culture's view of parenting like strike you as a healthy one, like as a as a one where it's not moved beyond uh, a good thing into a god? And, like, we we have these good desires, but when we make those things the center of our lives. They become enslaving. They become cruel gods. When we make our desires the center of our life, they're not free. And that's why Paul says, like, you can't go back to religion. You can't go back to the law. And our cultures then say, okay, well, it's not the religion. Well, that's not working either. And so Paul gives us an antidote. Which I would like, this whole series has been about the gospel. The gospel is the antidote. But Paul, Paul sort of gives it a unique lens. And he goes into a unique place with the gospel here that he hasn't yet gone in the letter, because he's not just saying, listen, how could you go back to the law because the law makes you a slave, right? You have to earn your place before God. It's not just that Paul's saying the law is a mistake. He's saying when you do that, you're not just becoming a slave, you're actually forsaking your adoption. Right? You're forsaking not just your salvation, but your adoption. Your status as a child of God, because God is not just going to save you, he's come to adopt you. So without God, we're trapped. The next place Paul goes is that in the gospel, we are children, we are not slaves. Look at uh, verses 4 through 6. This is kind of the heart of this passage at this point. Paul says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. 
And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave of a son, and a son and an heir through God. What Paul is saying there is that, that the heart of the gospel is that God sent Jesus into this world and to live under the law. The law that enslaves us, but it didn't enslave Jesus because he was perfect. And so Jesus lives out the law perfectly. And, and in that, and through his death on the cross for us, Jesus becomes human so that we humans can become sons. And I realize that's, that's a little weird. Like, so like, what about if you're a woman? Like, so do I count too? Or is it like only for guys? Um, and, and, I, and, and so that what's important to understand is that the reason Paul says we become sons of God is because one of his primary themes, which we'll get to at the end of the sermon, is that what God wants to give to us as his children is, is an inheritance, is wealth, is blessing. And in that day, only sons received inheritance. And so when Paul says we, all, we are all becoming sons, he's not saying this is only available to men. What he's saying is all of us, male and female, get the inheritance. We all get adopted as, as sons. So there's another place in the Bible where Paul refers to the church as the bride of Christ, which means Guys, we have to use some imagination and enter into the metaphor and imagine ourselves as the bride of Christ one day. And, and ladies, you have to imagine yourself as an inheritance son who receives the full inheritance from, from God. So I, I think if Paul's writing today, he would say sons and daughters because we don't have those same cultural uh, uh, expectations that only the son or the firstborn son in particular would get the inheritance. So if Paul's writing today, he would say sons and daughters. So if you're sitting back here wondering, like, am I in on this or is this only for God? Everyone's in. Everyone is. Sons in. And daughters. And Paul's, Paul's main point here is that God's not just offering us salvation as his people, he's offering us adoption. And if that's not a powerful metaphor for you, and, and for many it's not, because the pain and trauma coming from family experiences or a bad father can be hard. And yet, in many ways, it makes what Paul is saying here more powerful. That for those of us who have had a really good family experience, and this metaphor is powerful, then what Paul is saying is there's an even better family that you're invited into. And for those of us whose family is broken down, this is not a powerful metaphor, God is saying, let me welcome you into the true family. Let me be a true father to you. So what does this mean? What does it mean that God doesn't just want to redeem us or save us? He wants to adopt us. And that's where I want to spend the rest of our time is unpacking what this means, that we can be adopted into God's family. Because I think uh, a lot of us, what we do is we stop with the doctrine of justification. And we, we talked about this a couple weeks ago. Kind of the center of the gospel is justification by faith, which means when we put our faith in Jesus, uh, we sort of think of God as like the judge. And we, we're sinners. Like, we have things that are wrong with us, flawed in us, that keep us outside of the presence of God. And so the gospel sort of says, well, God is the judge, and he looks at us and our faith in Jesus, and he declares us not guilty. And so we're declared not guilty, we're forgiven, we can enter into God's salvation. And then God the judge, he gets off the bench, and he goes back into his chamber, and he's gone. That's sort of the way we understand the gospel, is we're declared not guilty. But Paul's saying that's not the whole gospel. God's not just our judge who says, well, your faith is in Jesus, therefore you're not guilty. No, God gets off his bench, he comes down, and he signs adoption papers, adoption process, and he brings us home into his family. It's the full gospel. The gospel is not just that God has forgiven you and will grudgingly welcome you into heaven. It's that he forgives you through his son Jesus, and then he welcomes you into it. He brings you home with him. Right? He holds you in his he brings you into his family. So don't stop at justification. You need to move into adoption. That's a part of the gospel 
as well. And that's what makes what's happening here in Galatians 4 so stunning, is that, that these people have experienced this. And yet they are turning back into a religious system where God has become their slave master again. And they have to perform, and they have to do, and they have to, they have to be good enough in order for God to welcome them into his family. And Paul's saying, why would, you, why would you give this up to go back into slavery? Because here's the thing, adoption, adoption is always a gift. Right? I mean, we've, we've had, actually, there's been a family who's gone through the adoption process. We have a new child as a part of our church who has been adopted. Entirely a gift. Right? They didn't go to that child and say, all right, when you, you know, are proficient in math and can clean the house, then you can come. No, it's like it's just a gift. Every adoption is a gift. It's bestowed on us. And so it's not something we can and so what Paul says in verses 6 and 7, this is a really important um, verse. He says, God, the Father, sent the Son, Jesus, and Jesus has sent the Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And that's a really important verse because, one, the whole Trinity is there. That's where one of the verses we get our doctrine of the Trinity from. The whole Trinity is involved in your adoption. But what's most important in that verse is, is that, that we're told the Spirit, Jesus sends the Spirit into our hearts to cry out, Abba, Father. Which means that the Spirit, one of the roles of the Holy Spirit in our lives is to give us the experience of God as Father. Right? This is not to be some like dry theological truth that we will, yes, I'm God's, our Father, Lord in heaven. No, like this, the Spirit enters into our hearts to enable us to cry out to the Father, to cry out. It's a word of passion, it's a word of deep significance and meaning. In other words, like the Spirit enters into our hearts, and we don't just think of God as a distant judge. We think of Him as a loving Father. Have you experienced God like that? Have you cried out, Abba, Father? And there's a few ways, like, oh, this, this would mean, or if, if this is true, if you're experiencing this, it would mean a few things. And the first thing it would mean is if, if you, if the Spirit is through your soul making you cry out, Abba, Father, it means you would live in freedom. That's Paul's central theme here, is that you, other religion is slave, it's enslaving, but the gospel is freeing, and you live in freedom. And so to, to illustrate this, I spent last week, all last week at, at Disney World um, with my family and uh, my parents and my, my sister and brother-in-law, and, uh, and it's like, Disney is, it's true, it's the happiest place on, on earth for like the first 10 minutes you're there, and then it's, then it's every man for himself. Uh, but no, it was amazing. I loved it with, uh, with my kids. Uh, but one of my favorite parts of the week was our middle son, Micah. He, like, he just wrote everything. But it didn't matter. Like, he didn't know where he was going. He didn't know what the ride was. But it's like, if we're going, I'm going. And he would just write anything. And so it wasn't until uh, day two or three, we were at Universal Studios. And like the first kind of adults-only ride was happening. But he like didn't understand that. He's like, no, I'm going. And so... My uncle, uh, or his uncle Eric, and uh, my sister Alicia, his aunt, uh, invited him to go on the uh, Universal, the Jurassic Park uh, river ride, which is, uh, you know, you go around the river, and then you take a steep and significant drop, um, which he never wrote anything uh, like this, but he had total trust, right? Total trust is like, my parents wouldn't put me on something that's dangerous, and like, I'm just getting my aunt and uncle are gone, I'm going, so he goes on this drive, and you should see the picture uh, of his face when you realize what was about to happen. <laughs> just to be fair, you don't have to call the police at the bottom of the ride. He said, let's do that again. Um, so he was, he's all in afterwards, but like he just lived out this week, like just I'll go anywhere. Like you guys are going, I'm going with you. 
and this sense of trust and confidence. And he walked around the park, Disney World, the universe, just completely free. Willing to go anywhere, not held back by anything. And watching, just watching his boldness last week was a reminder uh, to me that like I rest, we rest far more secure in the hands of our Father, Father God, than Micah does in his one. We get it in hands. And if you're in the gospel, when you've experienced God as Father, you're not left wondering if you've done enough to earn his protection. You're not left wondering, can I go to this, like, can I do this? Will he be with me? You can live freely, you can live in freedom, knowing your Father is with you in all things. You can trust, you can rest. And when, like, you're, you know, you're, a drop happens and you're crying out, you can cry out on the Father, right? He's there, he's watching over you. Right, the center of the gospel is that God wants to save you. He doesn't just want to save you, he wants to adopt you. So first, we can live in freedom, but secondly, we can pray like a child. And kids, like kids just kind of have a boldness with which they ask uh, for things. And we experienced that, that last week. And, and it's very different for how a kid uh, interacts with a parent than how an employee interacts with their boss. Right? There are things my kids will ask me for that I would never ask my, my boss for. And so we, that's the question. I mean, do you pray more like a child to God, your father, or more like his servant? Right, there are things I would never ask uh, my boss for, that my kids ask for me regularly. So there was a moment last week at Disney World uh, where our youngest son, he was two years old, he was underslept, he was just losing his mind. So we took him into a shop, and, and he loved stuffed animals, they didn't have a calming effect on him. So it's like, dude, big deal, just pick a stuffed animal, like, just pick something. And so he goes around, and he, he had an obsession with Minnie Mouse all week, and so my youngest son, he wanted a little Minnie Mouse, who he, uh, he referred to all week as Girl Mickey. <laughs> that feels problematic in some ways, but, um, but he, he wanted a Minnie Mouse stuffed animal, and he's just like, give me that, and so we did, like, he, and he could ask that as a child, he can ask us for anything, whereas, like, I would never ask my boss for uh, a Minnie Mouse stuffed animal, unless, like, I had a really good reason and justification for that, and the reality, I think a lot of Christians, they operate in prayer, like, I've got to, I have to justify this request to God. Either because, like, look at the week, I'm, like, I'm living a good life, I'm doing good things, like, God, you should give this to me. Or, like, we don't pray for something because we think we haven't done that, we can't ask. And yet, we should pray like a child. If you, if you believe that God is your Father and you've experienced this, you should pray like a child. And Jesus, I mean, he had explicitly encouraged us to pray like this. And one of my favorite parables Jesus tells, when he's out, the disciples ask him, how should we pray? Jesus tells the story. He says, listen, you should pray. Think, think of this. Imagine tonight at 2 a.m., your neighbor comes to your house and starts pounding on the door and asks you for a snack. And you yell back, listen, my kids are asleep. Leave me alone. And he just keeps, no, give me a snack. 2 a.m., middle of the night. Jesus says, pray like that. Like with a, just a boldness and an imprudence and a, just a lack, almost a lack of concern for the optics. Pray like the child, ask for anything. God is not, he's not a judge who's begrudgingly saved you. He's a father who wants to adopt you. He may say no, but he, he wants you to ask. Pray for anything, pray boldly, pray confidently. Pray like a child, pray like a child who live in freedom, and thirdly, and Paul's going to go into this in Galatians 4, um, but one of the implications of this is that if, if, if we Christians are adopted by God as Father, it means we, when we become Christians, we gain a new family. 
right? As a church, we are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And the language of family becomes prominent in the early church. So, so church, if we've experienced adoption with God as Father, it means we as Christians should have a burden for people who have not experienced that, who are not Christians, to experience God as Father. And the primary way they're going to experience that, the primary way that God is a loving Father who wants to adopt you into his family, it's not going to be through a good sermon. It's not going to be through a really great book. It's going to be through a community of people who live out the doctrine of adoption in compelling ways. And this is especially important because in a culture where families are fragmenting and uh, marriages are fragile and many, many father examples are not particularly compelling, creating a gospel culture of adoption in our church is incredibly important. It means, it means us, adults, having the burden to care for and love kids who are not our own kids. That's one of the beauty, like if you're, if Mother's Day is hard for you and, and you want children, then one of the thoughts should be like you have, like in the church, like, I, like we, our kids need as many mothers as they can get. And that language is in the New Testament. This is a new family. Beyond that, it should also create like this welcoming spirit where we have this burden for people to come in and feel like this is a family waiting to bring them in, like waiting to adopt them. Because that's one of the compelling things about Disney World. It's just like, it's just like every, like they just want you to have a good time. And they, they go about creating a hospitable culture that's really powerful. And as a church, if we've experienced God as Father, then that should be true of us. And listen, let me, like, this is, you will not have a better time in your life to learn this and to practice this than right now. But there are many disadvantages to worshiping uh, in middle school. Like one of them is probably the thin layer of sweat you all have right now. This room, I don't, this room isn't cool, so I don't understand it. We'll email them tomorrow. They'll tell us it was 70 degrees in here uh, this morning. I might save my sweat. Email them to them or something. But it's you got a thin layer of sweat. Middle school is a weird place to worship in. But what, one thing this does, one thing why church money is really important, is it creates this burden and a reminder. The reason the church exists is not so that I get my place and I'm satisfied and I can rest, but it's to have the burden that there are people who have not experienced God as Father, and they need to. And when they come in through our doors, like, we have the burden for them to know this is not just a religious gathering, but a family ready and willing to welcome them in. So live, listen, if you are experiencing God's fathers, you live you live in freedom, you pray like a child, you're embodying and gaining a new family. But for Paul, the most important aspect of adoption is this inheritance language. Right? He's kind of, religion is not like, you're a slave. You don't get inheritance. God, God, if you're there, you're lucky. You can it. Paul says it's not how God works. He wants to give you, he wants to make you part of him. He wants to give you his wealth, his riches. And the way Paul explains that, it's the gospel. It's that the God the Father sends Jesus, the firstborn, the true son, the true, like the true deservant of the inheritance. And what does Jesus do? Jesus gives up his inheritance. He gives up his rights. He gives up his wealth. And he takes our place on a cross so that we can have his place as a, as a child. Right? He gives up communion with the Father so that you and I can know the Father. He gives up his wealth and riches so that you and I can know a better inheritance. And so if you're left wondering, what does God want for you? What does he want to give to you? What is God thinking of you right now? What he's thinking is that he wants to be, he wants you to be his son, his daughter, so that he can pour out his wealth on you. If you believe that, are you experiencing that? Or do you see God as, as someone who's withholding from you? Someone who's 
who slow to respond, who slow to react. God is not that he wants to give you his inheritance. And he wanted that so badly. He gave up his firstborn son, a true person who deserved the inheritance. And that son gave you his spirit so that right now, God doesn't just want you to believe he is your father. 